Welcome to the podcast series from the Decision-Making Voices from the Field Leadership Seminars at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Bott. I'm an internist, a student at the Kennedy School studying Master's in Public Administration, and a Commonwealth Fund Health Minority Health Policy Fellow. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing our distinguished guest, Dr. David Blumenthal. He's a graduate of Harvard College, Harvard Medical School, Harvard Kennedy School, and trained in internal medicine at the Massachusetts General Hospital. He currently serves as a Samuel Othiel Professor of Medicine and also serves as a Chief Health Information Officer for Partners Healthcare. From 2009 to 2011, he served as a National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at the Office of the National Coordinator in the administration of President Obama. In the federal government, he charted a course for the meaningful use of electronic health records while building important public-private partnerships to ensure successful implementation of the high-tech law. I was lucky enough to have crossed paths with Dr. Blumenthal in 2008 when we worked together to help mobilize doctors and medical students and engage in the presidential election. In working with him, our team was struck by his humility, his grace, and commitment. He's been an incredible mentor and inspiration to many in the Harvard community, including his own son, Dan, who is training in internal medicine at the Massachusetts General Hospital, and truly represents effective leadership at many levels at both the public and private sector. In addition to a career in academic medicine, he served government as an aide to the late Senator Edward Kennedy, a hospital manager as senior vice president of the Brigham Women's Hospital, and a presidential campaign advisor, and a public sector leader. Dr. Boomthal, known as a terrific thinker, an innovator, and has been a key decision maker in the most important pay for performance program in American healthcare, and that's meaningful use. And that'll help usher medicine into a new area of performance and practice. Ladies and gentlemen, he also has an important place in our heart as a Commonwealth Fund Fellow because he's a co founder of the fellowship and also has been a leader in high performing health systems. Please give him a warm HSPH welcome. And I'll turn the seminar over to Dr. Blunt. Jay, thank you very much. Just uh, one second here. This is a, a continuation of a series whose sole purpose is to help you in the future when you assume some of the major roles in the United States or in the world to basically understand the kind of choices and decisions that you may have to make. Uh, David uh, is uh, absolutely terrific in experience in that he wrote a book about presidential decision making. He's been an advisor to almost all the senior leadership uh, in, in health policy. And then he assumes a major role of great proportion in a presidency that just passed uh, a major act. And what we've asked David to really talk about is what you think about when you actually assume that responsibility and you have to make decisions in a role which is very different than that as a university professor or as an advisor. David, it's terrific having you back in this role. Thank you so much, Bob. Thanks, Jay, for that very kind introduction. It's great to be here. Great to see uh, so many students here. Uh, I have, uh, just from my perspective, uh, before I start, I wonder if any of you have had the opportunity to serve in government or to serve in leadership roles. I know public health students often uh, have those roles. Can you show your hands? 
That's great. So some of you will be able to uh, perhaps identify personally with some of the things I'll be talking about. I'm just going to speak very briefly to kind of lay out the scene that confronted uh, me when I got to Washington in April of 2009 and then some of the ways that I responded and a couple of lessons. And then we'll turn it open to, to your questions. So as, as Jay and Bob said, in April of 2009, I arrived in Washington having worked for a couple of years on the Obama for President campaign. And I arrived there as national coordinator for health information technology with the responsibility of implementing a new law called the High Tech Act. And that law set out a number of really formidable challenges. So one of them was that uh, I and my colleagues uh, in the Office of the National Coordinator was responsible for creating a nationwide interoperable, private and secure electronic health information system in the United States. Now, that in itself, that vision of a pervasive, interoperable, private and secure system that could serve everyone all the time is a vision that's never been realized in the history of mankind. So it just doesn't exist anywhere on Earth. Uh, so right away, it was clear that we had expectations that ran way ahead of our technological ability. We also knew that the Congress had set aside up to $30 billion in incentives to reward hospitals, physicians, other health professionals who became meaningful users of electronic health records. So the method, one of the principal methods for us to get from where we were, which was a very low level of use and adoption of electronic health information systems in the United States at the time to this uh, image of a idealized system, uh, we had this $30 billion in incentives as a major, as a major tool. Uh, we also had $2 billion in discretionary funds for my office in particular to help create the infrastructure. The incentive money was to be paid out to physicians and hospitals and other health professionals. So that was money that would go out the door into the pockets of people out there in the world. It wasn't money that we could control or direct, um, though we had to set the standards for meaningful use. But uh, there was also this $2 billion to kind of lay the infrastructure, make it possible for people who wanted to adopt, professionals and institutions who wanted to adopt, to be able to do that. So big challenges. Uh, big on their own, just in, uh, in terms of the scale, but we faced another challenge, and that was that the Congress had said that we had to produce a regulation by December 31st, 2009, that laid out the standards and implementation specifications and certification criteria for electronic health records that would support meaningful use. Now, if you don't know what standards and implementation specifications and certification criteria are, then we have something in common, because I didn't know <laughs> when I got there what those things were either. Uh, but we knew we had to produce it by, whatever it was, we had to produce a regulation describing it by December 31st. Now, I got there in April, so that's, uh, you know, you can do the math, that's uh, eight months take away about four or five months for internal review because you don't just someday wake up and post a, uh, a regulation in the 
Federal Register, it has to go through a very elaborate process of review within the administration, starting within the Department of Health and Human Services, and then going up through the Office of Management and Budget, and going through the White House, and then going out for, and then, so it, and throughout, so it's a big deal, it takes months. So we really had about five months to produce this highly technical regulation. But there was a problem with that regulation, which was that it made no sense to write it till you knew what meaningful use was because the standards and the implementation specifications and the certification criteria were laid out the technical uh, basis for electronic health records to support meaningful use. Well, to support meaningful use, you had to know what meaningful use was. So basically, we had five months to define the meaningful use of electronic health records. Meaningful use was a concept that was new. The Congress left wide latitude to the Secretary to define it, and it was I came to realize a really fundamental concept because information is the lifeblood of medicine. It is the most important resource that clinicians have in treating patients. Uh, if you don't know your patient's laboratory results, their past history, their medications, their problems, you are extremely limited in what you can do for them. So in effect, the meaningful use of electronic health records was the meaning, uh, could be translated into the meaningful use of information because we were going to be defining what electronic records could be, would be capable of doing in the way of providing information for caretakers of the American public. We were really been defining the essential information platform for U.S. medicine. Big, big challenge conceptually, intellectually, uh, a big challenge organizationally. So when I arrived in Washington, I arrived at a, uh, to take charge of an organization of about 35 FTEs that had been created by executive order uh, by President George W. Bush. It was a group of people who had never been tasked with spending money, never developed a grant program, never written a regulation. Their work had been advising the secretary on health information technology policy. They wrote contracts for studies. That was most of what they did. They did do some work developing standards on contract. So we needed not only a whole bunch of new regulations and conceptual work, we needed a new office. And we needed it fast because we had five months to do all this, uh, to do all this uh, regulation writing. The other thing I quickly came to realize, and I think this depended a lot on my understanding of how government worked. Here we were sitting with $30 billion, at least that's what the public thought. We had this money, we were just sitting on it, right? It was in our pockets, burning a hole in our pockets. There was no health reform at that point. This was part of the stimulus bill. This was the biggest thing in healthcare that the president had done at the beginning of his term. He talked about it a lot. He described it as a down payment on health reform. Well, if he couldn't manage this program, how could he be trusted to manage health reform? So there was a lot of attention. There was a lot of attention on this program and how fast it got out of the block. Did it look like we were in charge? Did it look like we were capable of implementing 
this very, uh, this very important new mandate. It wasn't just the public that was looking at this. It was my colleagues in government. People in the White House wanted to know whether we were up to the task. People in the Office of the Management and Budget wanted to know if we were up to the task. People in the Department of Health and Human Services, to the extent there were any, there weren't very many because no one had been confirmed by the Congress yet, uh, wanted to know if we were up to the task. So uh, we had to prove ourselves not only uh, to our external audiences, but to our internal audiences as well. The last challenge, which I totally didn't anticipate, was a perceptual challenge. Uh, and that was, this was a, an issue that had been percolating for decades. The American healthcare system was known to be very deficient in its embrace of information technology, of modern communications in general. Only about 17% of US physicians had a basic electronic health record, only 15% of hospitals. It was it, the modal way of managing information in the United States was then, and frankly still is, paper. So we had been working, others had been working on this, and uh, it had been a kind of neglected issue. The advocates for spreading health information technology were viewed as sort of white hat folks. You know, the, all these blue ribbon commissions had favored it. It looked like, you know, there was no downside to it. It was a motherhood and apple pie. Well, as soon as the Congress put $30 billion into this, the press woke up. They said, where, where did this $30 billion come from? You know, who's going to gain from this? And pretty soon they figured out there was an industry out there that was going to gain from it, the health information technology industry. And pretty soon they started asking, who put the fix in? Who was responsible for getting this money passed to the Congress and set aside to fund this new industry? Well, it must be the industry, right? So the storyline was, and came back to me very quickly, that the Obama administration and the Obama campaign was in the pocket of the electronic health record industry. And there was actually a I got a call one day from an investigative reporter at the Washington Post who had clearly already written his story, mm -hmm. who uh, basically was asking me to comment on the allegation that the electronic health record industry and certain specific individuals who were active in the Obama campaign had been responsible for inserting into the <coughs> Obama campaign platform a, a commitment to the electronic health record and HIT cause and then had lobbied through the Congress this set of provisions that were part of the stimulus law. And sure enough, above the fold, front page story in the Washington Post ran about how this was the case, implying that I personally somehow was linked to the electronic health record industry. So that set uh, a, a completely different cast on it turned out, by the way, not to be true. I had no involvement with electronic health records. I was, the board, I was on the staff of the New England Journal. My conflict of interest rules prohibited me even from taking honoraria, consulting. I had nothing, no involvement at all. The story went away, but it did alert me to the fact that this, there were stakes involved here that I hadn't anticipated. 
uh, and that I would have to tread very, very carefully in my relationship with constituency groups in general and with industry in particular. Now industry, of course, when you're trying to stimulate the spread of electronic health record and other technologies, their capability, their insight into what's possible is a very important set of data points. So uh, that was an issue that I had to figure out how to manage. So uh, what, did I, what did we do in response to this? The first thing we had to do was figure out what our job was uh, and understand that we couldn't do everything that was expected of us at once. And it occurred to me, and it, it seemed that both logically and from a perceptual standpoint, one of, the t one of the most tangible and important results of our work would be actually to get the nation's physicians and hospitals and nurses to start putting information into digital form. That our ambitions to have an electronic, a pervasive electronic system with information flowing everywhere couldn't begin until the information, the data about patients, was in bits and bytes. And that meant getting electronic health records adopted and meaningfully used. So we decided that initially the first step was going to focus on the meaningful use of electronic health records as the first step in a long set of steps that would get us, we hoped, to the, to the vision that we were trying to accomplish. This meant that we could focus and had to focus our energy on meaningful use and its spread. The second thing that we then had to do was to figure out, okay, what had to change? What literally, in every physician's office, in every, on every hospital nursing station, in every nurse practitioner's office, what literally had to happen in order to accomplish the meaningful use of electronic health records? Well, people who were reluctant, maybe uh, fearful, technically uh, not competent, had to be able to go out and choose a record and have it installed and turn it on and begin to use it and then begin to use it competently. They wouldn't be able, most, most care in the United States in the outpatient areas delivered in small physician practices. There was gonna be no IT staff. There was gonna be no hot and cold running help. Uh, somehow the federal government had to make this possible. So the first thing we did was to concentrate on technical assistance and training. Training for a staff that could, uh, IT professionals who could help physicians in hosp small hospitals do this, and uh, creation of an infrastructure that would make those trained people available so that those reluctant, concerned, technically uh, less than totally competent people could actually do this. So we started at something called the health, uh, it was actually in the legislation that we had to do this, but we decided to make it our top priority to start uh, a set of uh, what in the law was called regional extension centers. And these were actually intended to be on the ground, local sources of assistance 
to physicians and hospitals. Now I had $2 billion to spend on this, and I quickly realized that even if I spent all $2 billion on it, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough to touch all the 550 or 600,000 health professionals who were eligible. We just didn't have that kind of an infrastructure to get into every town and every urban area in the country, to reach every hospital, to reach every physician group. Not enough money. So we had to set priorities. So the f one of the first things I did was to get the Secretary of Health and Human Services and then the White House to agree on who our priority populations would be. And we decided, after looking at several options, that we would try to help those who were least able to help themselves and those whose care might have the biggest impact. We focused on primary care physicians in small practices in underserved areas. And uh, by June of 2009, I had, at a meeting at the White House, arranged for all the major players to agree that that would be our strategy. Uh, and that freed me up to set priorities within the office. The next thing I knew I had to do is I had to spend money. That may sound odd, but it's not easy to spend money in the federal government. There are lots of approvals you need. There are lots of safeguards you have to uh, get, uh, have to manage. Uh, and I decided that we needed, in order to make it clear that we were open for business and ready to go, that we had to make a major statement very fast about the programs we were setting up, the Regional Extension Center program, for example, the training program. Now, it, it is hard to spend money, and sometimes it's hard to get the attention of the people you need to get to approve the things you want to do. And though this seemed like a really important thing to me, there were lots of other things happening in the federal government. And I had to get this program through the, uh, through the approval process, up through the department, and through Office of Management and Budget, and through the White House. Well, I had learned something from a mentor, a mentor by the name of uh, Richard Neustadt, who was a professor of politics and government, one of the founders of the Kennedy School. And in my master's in public policy training, we had done a number of cases. Uh, and one of the ca a number of them established the importance of deadlines. Basically, in government, nothing happens without a deadline. So part of my challenge was to create a deadline. And the way I created a deadline was by getting the people who were in charge of the stimulus bill which this was part of, to single this program out as an important program and create a deadline for the announcement of this funding. Now, they were very anxious to do this because the stimulus bill was supposed to get implemented very fast. It was part of the response to the economy. Uh, getting the money, the stimulus money out the door was a high priority. So I had a contact in the vice president's office. The vice president was responsible for the stimulus bill's implementation. And I got an event on his calendar to announce the release of our funds. <coughs> Once that was on his calendar, everyone had to line up to get the decision made in time for him to announce it. 
So in August of 2009 in Chicago, the Vice President announced the release of about $1.2 billion of our $2 billion, which was a way of saying to the world, the Office of the National Coordinator is open for business. Uh, and we're working, we're, we've got this, we're under, we've got this uh, plan, and we're moving ahead, uh, so don't worry. One last thing I want to say, since this is an academic environment. Um, over the course of many years in academia, I had written more grants than I ever want to talk about. <laughs> and there's always a part of a grant up at the front where you're asked to write a conceptual framework, which is basically a model of the world. So how does the part of the world that you want to study, how do you think it behaves? <clears throat> what are the moving parts? How do they fit together? What are the relationships that cause things to happen? I didn't know how to imagine this huge change management project that I was setting out upon along with my colleagues. I didn't know how to imagine it without some idea of how the world worked that I was trying to operate. So we actually wrote, did a model. <clears throat> very basic, very primitive, some boxes and arrows. But it was good enough for us to kind of feel confident that we had a plan. And it worked wonders with my colleagues at the Office of Management and Budget who felt like, well, these guys have thought about it. They're not just waving their hands. They've got a theory. Uh, so I guess I've, I've taken more time than I wanted to. But I would say act fast when you have a new responsibility. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Sometimes something imperfect allows you time to do better down the line. Set deadlines and think analytically. Don't forget your academic training. It can be extremely valuable. And I'm going to stop there and let you guys uh, ask some questions. David, here. just one quick question for me and then it <coughs> goes to everyone else. In a short period of time, you had to recruit some key people. What went into your decision of who you would try to recruit? And also getting them in the government quickly is not an easy task either, so. Well, I, I knew that I needed two kinds of people. I needed people who knew a lot about IT and how to implement it. Now, I haven't told you my dirty little secret, which is that I knew very little about information technology <laughs> when I got there. Uh, I had really was not a technical person. I'd used an electronic health record, but I knew nothing about what was going on inside the box. So I needed someone who had real substantive knowledge, actually a couple of people. The other thing I needed was someone who knew how the federal government operated. So I got my boss, the deputy secretary, I reported to the secretary, but day in and day out, uh, my, my interactions were mostly with the deputy secretary to agree that I would have two deputies. One, an operating person who would be from the federal government, and the other, a sort of policy person who would be more substantive. I also had the great good fortune that the chief information officer from Partners Health System, who I knew and trusted, had decided that he wanted to take six months and consult to the Office of the National Coordinator. So he was there with me as translator and technical guide 
Then I began recruiting other people, but those were the two people I focused on first, and then they began recruiting folks. So once I had two deputies and one or two other people in place, special assistant, I felt like I could begin to focus on the policy and let them begin to focus on the, man, on the recruitment of the people that they were going to re report to them. Your questions now. Hi, my name's Elna Nagasako, and I'm in the master's program um, in health policy and management. Mm -hmm. And so you'd alluded to the need to um, get buy-in, you know, from different segments, including, you know, people in small practices out, you know, in various underserved areas. How do how, how were you able to do that, given, you know, all of these other responsibilities and the, the high mm -hmm. position you were in? It's very important to see that uh, when you're taking on a new program like this, you're in the change management business. You're not, it would have been easy to see this as a technology program, but it wasn't a technology program, it was a change management program. As I described what was required of clini clinicians to make this change, what I was really, what we were really talking about is a psychological change. And I was fully aware that what I needed, what we needed, was a change in psychology on the part of health professionals throughout the United States and on the part of the people who run healthcare institutions. So we quickly decided that we needed to have to, to, to communicate in lots of different ways and using lots of different forms. I began sending out emails to uh, key audiences. We put together a list of constituencies, the usual professional groups and hospital groups and so on, and I would periodically send out emails. We set up a website, and we had a website, but we added to the website uh, a, a regular set of messages, and I started blogging as well. And then we had uh, an attentive press that uh, some of whom were quite technical and some of whom were not, uh, but I welcomed the press attention and sought it in any way I could, trying, of course, to create a positive message. We had two advisory committees that had been set up by the Congress, which uh, turned out to be a boon for us. One was a, a general policy advisory committee and the other was a technical advisory committee. And we got those going very quickly and began holding meetings. I had worked on Capitol Hill, and in my work uh, for Senator Ted Kennedy, I had seen <coughs> the way in which he used hearings and open meetings as communications devices. So uh, one of the things we did is we uh, used the meetings of our advisory committees as places to surface issues that we thought the community needed to know about and a way to get messages out. And what would happen is that these were open meetings. They had to be open by statute. Uh, they resulted in um, many, many uh, blogs and st stories that went out on lo through lots of uh, mostly technical media on the, uh, on the issues that were in front of us. And so communication in every form that we could imagine it was the solution that, um, that we sought. And then when, the, uh, when we actually finished the regulation and published it, I began traveling. 
I would basically, we set up a, a list of groups we wanted to touch, uh, and I would make a point of trying to get invited to speak to them. Uh, sometimes that didn't have to work very hard. Uh, and uh, so I did, a, in the fall of 2009, I did a lot of traveling, uh, speaking to groups and all over the country. When I was advised to do that, I thought, is this really going to be worth it? You know, it's, it's a lot of work. I was commuting from Boston, so I would get on a plane every Monday morning at 6, and I would come home at 5.30 at night. And with travel, that meant I would get to Washington and get on another plane and then come back. And sometimes I wouldn't come back to Washington the whole week, and I'd fly back to Boston. It turned out to be a terrific thing to do because it wasn't just the people I spoke to, but it was the kind of buzz that I was traveling out speaking to people. And it gave the impression that we cared about what people thought. Uh, and that's a powerful thing to communicate as a public official. Other <coughs> questions? Hi, I'm Jeff Yoram. I'm in the I'm in the Master in Public Health program and Policy and Management. And my question to you is, I'm sure before you went to DC and while you were there at the ONC, there was a lot of challenges you were expecting, but what was the biggest challenge you didn't expect and how did you deal with it? There were two that I didn't expect. One was, I mentioned the investigative reporting uh, discussion. It turned out that I was basically tracked by investigative reporters the entire time I was in Washington. <laughs> I, I kind of felt sorry for some of them because they would come to these incredibly boring <laughs> events, you know, and I had trouble understanding it. It wasn't the kind of thing that their readers were going to care about. But um, I actually, th there was one I, I felt kind of paternal towards. She was about my daughter's age, and I, and I felt like I should take her out to lunch and say, you know, there's no Pulitzer in this for you. <laughs> um, but uh, so it, that was one I didn't, I didn't anticipate the suspicion that would be directed at me. You know, we all think of ourselves as good people. Uh, it was, though I relished the chance to, to serve uh, as I did it, when it was something that I had always wanted to do, it still was a sacrifice for my family and for me to both physically and uh, in many other ways <coughs> to do this. So the idea that you would at, at that time also be the focus of all this suspicion about your personal motives. Uh, and, you know, you have to lay your life bare if you serve in the public. I, I disclosed all my financial holdings, all my, my uh, family's financial holdings. Uh, my, my calendar was, uh, was uh, the subject of Freedom of Information Act requests. Uh, and uh, so I knew that whoever I saw was going to be all, that I couldn't see anybody privately, basically. So that was one surprise, and it did change how I conducted myself. One of the reasons why, for the openness about the meetings we held, and I can talk about that later, was to dispel that suspicion. The other thing that surprised me was uh, that, uh, though I expected to have close supervision from people in the White House and the Office of Management and Budget, I often found that when they got involved in my work. It was erratic and without real careful thought about what they were interested in. So 
the, the White House especially had very little interest in the substance of what I was doing. Some issue would get somebody's attention for some reason that wasn't clear and they would suddenly descend on, on us, you know, wanting more information. I could, and I could, half the time I could never figure out why. Uh, so uh, I found uh, that uh, though the President's support of the initiative was very important and critical, the people around him would, uh, were as often as not uh, irritants as they were <laughs> helpful. With that, next question. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Blumenthal. Jim Kennedy. So I'm a Commonwealth Fund Health Policy Fellow, MPH student, and an emergency physician. And I have a little bit of a background in the military, and I worked at the VA a little bit. And what I'm curious is, how, to what degree do you interface with or interact with the existing health records people in the VA and the military system? In the military, we could access people's health records worldwide. So uh, just curious about that point. We had a lot of interaction with the VA and the military. Uh, and uh, a lot of very, I think, good sound coordination. Uh, we were developing the standards that would affect their electronic health systems as well as our own. And since the VA and the military actually are not insular, but they relate at many levels to the rest of our health system, a lot of people from the VA who get their care in the VA also get care in the private system. And a lot of the families of military people get care in the private sector. And uh, some uh, military personnel do as well. So uh, the same informa the information that was uh, present in the VA systems needed to be accessible outside it and vice versa. So we worked with them closely in trying to make sure that as we developed this, the definition of meaningful use and the standards for electronic health systems, that they were aware of it and felt comfortable with it and that it wasn't going to frustrate their, their plans. We also did uh, some coordinated funding to try to develop pilots for information exchange between the VA and the DOD and the private sector. So we had, a, I think, a very positive, uh, uh, mutually supportive relationship, and it was a very important, uh, an unanticipated and important part of the, uh, the role that the national coordinator played. Hi, thanks very much for coming and talking with us. I'll, I'll just stand to the side because it's a little awkward. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my name's Matt. I'm, I'm a MPH student, and I'm also studying to get my uh, MD um, in the quantitative methods concentration. Mm -hmm. um, I, you have some uh, clinical experience, clinical training, and also public policy training, and I'm curious how the two uh, worked together when you, when you went to Washington and in particular, how did your how did your clinical experiences and your clinical training influence what you were doing uh, in Washington? Thanks. The identity that was most valuable to me in Washington, uh, in the work that I did, the the role that was most powerful was my role lifelong role as a primary care physician. Uh, wherever I spoke, I started out by describing myself as a primary care physician. 
as someone who had learned to use an electronic health record, uh, somewhat reluctantly, because that's true, uh, someone who was raised in the paper world and made the transition to the electronic world, and, and someone who saw patients and could understand how an electronic record could affect individual patients and individual clinical decisions. So that was uh, something that I quickly came to realize was a, a role, an identity that would be extremely valuable to me. And it was valuable not just in a perceptual sense, but also in my attempts to imagine in a very personal way what we were requesting of physicians, what we were asking them to do, and what, how we could communicate to them what fears we had to address, what reluctance we had to address, what technical obstacles we had to address. I don't think I could have felt that as clearly and inten intensely or had the conviction about what we needed to do if I hadn't had that experience. I'm not sure I would have had that same understanding if I'd been a lifelong user of electronic health record or if I'd been your age and grown up in a computer, in a world of electronic uh, equipment. So uh, those were incredibly valuable for me. The other thing that was valuable was four years that I spent in hospital management because I also knew how hospital CFOs think. Uh, and I could imagine what was going on in the dialogue between the CEO, the CFO, the chief information officer, the chief medical information officer, and what would turn the tables on that dialogue in favor of an acquisition of an electronic health record. So I, I was uh, much more benefited. I, I made much more use of my clinical identity. At the same time, my lifelong interest in public policy the book I wrote about presidents, my service in campaigns, uh, my work for Ted Kennedy, my, the understanding of communications and politics that came from that were also vital. So I don't think either would have been sufficient. Together, they made me feel like I had a, a fighting chance uh, <laughs> to get it right. Uh, thank you for speaking. Uh, my name is Andrew Che. I'm in the master's program in healthcare policy and management. Uh, you mentioned you had a lot of challenges that you didn't anticipate uh, when you started your work. Um, I was wondering, are, were there any leadership challenges or your approach to them that perhaps looking back in retrospect you, you may have wished you had done differently uh, perhaps um, and would, would kind of convey that to us? I sometimes feel like you uh, should probably ask the people who worked with me and for me. I'm going to make it to. I th uh, you know, one of the biggest challenges I have. So I expect with the next crisis, we'll be, we're going to be in the same place where we don't have that safety net that allows governments to do what, what you should do for public health without bearing such a tremendous political cost. Dr. Besser, Barry Dorn, Harvard School of Public Health. Rich, you mentioned that uh, you heard about this at first when you were in Israel. You met a lot of influential people there and a lot of people who were making very difficult decisions. 
What were some of the leadership lessons you learned and brought back uh, to do this job as well as you did it? You know, one of the, one of the things that, that I learned was that there's absolutely no way our country will be prepared for disasters in the way that Israel will. And that that's kind of rational. You know, people, people will prepare for what they experience in their day-to-day -day life. And the reason Israelis were prepared for terrorism is that you know, there were periods where they were having thousands of, of, of bombs going off. It was part of their day-to-day -day life. And so you prepare for that. Um, just as you know, in our households here, we, most people have Band-Aids because someone's going to fall and skin their knee. It's part of their life that, that, that you experience. Um, there are little windows where you can get a few more people prepared so that whenever there's you know, tornadoes or hurricanes, you can make the message as to you need to get prepared. But you're never really going to get a lot, that much traction during that except uh, uh, if, if things change. People in this country will prepare for you know, suicide bombers after we start seeing suicide bombers, and, and hopefully that will, will not happen. I'm, I'm surprised it hasn't so far. Um, the other, some of the other, it was, it was so fascinating seeing people during crisis in, in, in Israel making, making decisions. Um, yeah, I, I, there's, there's not one that comes to mind that, that, uh, that I'm going to share. We saw other hands here. Uh, Rosemary Weiber, I'm a Master's Public Health student in Global Health. Um, and I guess for those of us at the start of our career, um, I know that you had a lot of early experiences that obviously contributed to the positions uh, that you've got now, particularly working in Bangladesh and internationally. I wondered what formative roles or lessons you had early in your career that have stood you instead over, over many years now? Um. Formative things, you know, one is, is, you know, early on I just got really excited about um, trying to, to, to answer questions. You know, the science behind, uh, behind public health. Uh, you know, one of my favorite jobs ever was being an epidemic intelligence service officer at CDC and trying to unravel a mystery. I was in the food board branch and my first outbreak was uh, hemolytic uremic syndrome up here in Massachusetts. And I came up here and I spent two and a half months up here, uh, a lot of it at, at Boston Children's Hospital, and I was able to link this to un uh, unprocessed apple cider from Swansea, Massachusetts. And we found E. coli 057 as the cause, and uh, it was really, really exciting. I even met my wife there. <laughs> so I came back, I was the first EIS officer to go out on an outbreak, solve the outbreak, and come back with a spouse. <laughs> um, but kind of that curiosity is, is, is really key. Um, wanting to challenge the, the norm, not taking things at face value. Uh, I still get really, uh, the, the nerd in me goes, goes really wild over analyzing a, a, an epi study. Uh, this week there was a paper that came out looking at coffee consumption and depression in women. And I really liked digging into that study and and getting my read on it, which was very different from the read that was in the press release and was in the most of the media outlets. Just unraveling it and trying to understand what it, what it really meant. Um, the other formative thing was, was some of the stuff in global health. And 
when I, I took a year after college and traveled around the world. I bought a around the world ticket and just kept going until I got back before medical school. And I was just exposed to a lot. Um, a lot of health problems around the globe, a lot of issues of social justice, and that's been very important to me throughout my career as well. I, I knew that I wanted to do work in global health, um, you know, because of life circumstances. Being based globally is not is is not what uh, my career has turned into. But throughout, even now at ABC, we we were fortunate to have funding from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for our global health coverage. So tomorrow night on, on World News, I have a story about the introduction of pneumococcal vaccine in Kenya and the issue of the global burden of pneumonia. Well, I mean, how cool is that? Network TV covering a problem that's, a, you know, that, that's really big in Africa and is not so big in Topeka? That's, that's for me, uh, really, really exciting. Good morning, Martin Reedy. I'm a master's student in the Department of Society, Human Development and Health. And I, just one question. You mentioned briefly you had thought about academia as a possible uh, pursuit. If you just had it, your schedule freed up, hypothetically speaking, you had the opportunity to be invited back here to teach a course, and they said, we want you to teach our students about leadership. What are some of the things you'd want to put into that course, whether it's the type of objectives you'd set, or even bringing in other speakers or possibly cases you'd like to look at? This is a serious question because we're going to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, uh, um, I mean, I love, I love to teach, and and um, have with with every job I've had, I've I've tried to do teaching. I love teaching outbreak investigations. Um, but you've got such great leadership stuff available here. I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm on the advisory board for NPLI. I'm a big, that model really speaks to me, the, the model of meta leadership and looking at dimensions and breaking leadership down into components. Uh, you know, someone was asking me, are leaders born or are they made? And it's both. You know, you've, everyone has certain traits that, uh, that will impact on what kind of leader that they're going to be. But everyone can improve by, by learning. And th that's really exciting. You know, when you see somebody, when, when, I, when I first heard uh, uh, about uh, Giuliani during 9-11 during, during and his communication, I was just blown away by how well he communicated. And someone said to me, well, do you realize that he had practiced all of those messages for years? That at his staff meetings, they would rehearse those messages? So do you think more or less of, of him as a leader for that? And my initial thought was, geez, I feel like I was conned. <laughs> but then in reflection, it's like, no, that was perfect. You know, he understood what was the most devastating scenario that could hit New York, and he worked on what he would communicate during that. And that's, and he did it beautifully. And I think that's a principle of leadership, is you, you look at what are the risks, you, you, and you exercise, you practice, you, you do that. Case studies are invaluable, especially if you can talk to people who were involved during that event. How did, you know, how did you decide to do that? Well, I mean, getting at that, and these forums I think are a great way to do that, can really help, help you understand that. Uh, so now, you've got great resources here and, and people to, to learn from in terms of, of leadership, crisis leadership and leadership 
uh, outside of a crisis where, where things are a little different. Uh, let me, uh, uh, one more question. We all take instructions from the back. <laughs> Who's our one more question? There we go. My name is Audrey Shannon. I'm in the master's program for health policy and management. And as you've crossed over into the media, as we know, media really likes to cover the stories that they find the public will be interested in. So H1N1 is a very, you know, exciting issue to talk about and other things. But in health policy and management, we really deal with the less desirable topics, you know, childhood obesity, diabetes, you know, even health reform. How do you manage that role at ABC News and, you know, manage your own interest in those topics and maybe some resistance on covering them? on a national scale. Yeah. Uh, it's a real challenge. And, and it runs exactly opposite to what public health does, right? People in public health are anecdotes, right? They're not data. It's just a person and their story. And in public health, in epidemiology, you want to make sure that you're not swayed by that individual. It may help you generate a hypothesis. But then you use data to, to look at the problem and come up with risk factors and such. In television, it's the exact opposite. You have to take a problem like childhood obesity or diabetes and find a character to illustrate that. And it's really challenging. And I'll often get pitched stories from, we have a study coming out. It's showing that you know, such and such have a twofold increase of Alzheimer's disease or, or of diabetes. You know, do you want to interview the researcher? And it's like, no, but can you help us find a character to illustrate that? And that's what you need to think about when you're thinking about how do you use media to promote public health. It's taking it from the this, which is where you operate in public health, and drilling it down to the individual. So my story on, on pneumococcal vaccine for, for Kenya isn't about 1.5 million children die each year around the globe from pneumococcal disease. The current vaccine has 10 serotypes, you know, which account for 87% of pneumococcal disease. Introduction will, it's like, everyone's out. So the story is about a mother in Kibera, the largest slum that's there, and how one of her children had pneumonia and almost died, and she has a baby that we're going to go vaccinate. And that puts a face on it. And the mother's hope that her next child will not have pneumonia. And that tells the story. And that for $3.50, that's all it takes to potentially save this child's life. And, and that's really fun, is, is, is seeing how do you tell important public health stories to a national audience, often in a minute and 20 seconds. So in uh, uh, closing this, uh, our personal story, in the course of H1N1, we of course were watching Rich on television and this universal thing just, we've never seen anybody communicate like this. <laughs> this is just incredible. Uh, for, for this, there has to be another role uh, for him because he could explain this uh, to people, to officials, and it was awesome. And uh, we won't say this, but he couldn't make every briefing. So we had a controlled study. Not everybody who did the briefing when he was there had exactly the same skill. And it was incredible if he was there, you could understand it. And people in the Congress and newspaper reporters, and that skill was so powerful because it reassured people of where you were going. So it, it has been just awesome to sort of watch the uh, uh, move from one role to the other. But also for those of you who don't follow uh, the uh, commentators, when he took the job, 
he insisted that it be a public health role explaining public health issues, not just the latest clinical finding about how one organ system was treated or another. And he is playing an incredible role in educating millions of people to raise a level. So we uh, are just grateful that he spent part of the day with us, also that he advises uh, uh, Lenny Marcus in an incredible program. But thanks again for everybody, Rich. And thanks for doing what you're doing. This has been a production of Decision Making Voices from the Field at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. We encourage you to share Decision Making Voices from the Field. By month basis, what people were thinking, what they were doing, and how we should change our programs in response to that. Hi, Monica Brown, I'm an internist and a MPH candidate in Health Policy and Management in um, Commonwealth Fund Fellowship. I had a question. You alluded to the um, IT vendors and a little bit about the industry, and I wonder if you could talk about um, special interest groups and how you personally thought about that in terms of getting to your goal and how that would conflict. I'm specifically thinking about the obstacles that might come about with universal, a true universal health record. This agenda is so widely supported that it's not common for an organization to oppose it frontally. So the key organizations, the ones that really have influence in Washington, were uh, at least formally supportive. Uh, and uh, the American Hospital Association, the American Medical Association, the American College of Physicians, the American Nursing Association, uh, you name it. If they, if, they had, if they were present and talking about this, they would always say, we believe in this, we support it, but we think you're going too fast. Or we don't like this particular part of the regulation. Or we would prefer you spend your money this way. So there, at least there was a commonality of interest. My approach was twofold. Uh, first, to make a persuasive case that we were not asking too much. And to make sure that, as in any way I could, and this is where I think my previous experience with Capitol Hill and with presidential campaigns and with um, an understanding of politics and learning from Bob how to think about politics was useful in terms of understanding what the breaking point was for some of these constituent groups and what their capability would be to undermine our agenda. And that mostly had to do with what they could do in Congress. And I could remember as a former congressional staff person what it feels like when someone comes in and tells you about something awful the executive branch is doing and what you would expect to hear about that and what might cause you to think it was truly awful. So I wanted to make sure that in my ear that story would never sound awful. Um, and that actually turned out to be very helpful because we titrated our regulations against what we thought would be the threshold for Congress to step in. Uh, and 
Uh, American Hospital Association at one point took out full page ads in the Washington Post criticizing uh, our meaningful use regulation. Uh, and we could, I had a sense of what we had to do to respond to that, to undercut their effort to get Congress to delay or postpone. So I, I would say that part of it is politics. The other part is communication, listening. I never turned down an invitation to meet with the AMA, the AHA, any other physician or professional group. I never turned it down. And I never sent subordinates. I always went personally, to the extent that my schedule could, could allow it. And that creates a sense of openness and willingness to listen uh, that is invaluable in terms of muting the anger that could otherwise arise in situations like that. I'm going to thank uh, David and just take uh, one point of my own in closing. Uh, what uh, David did just so beautifully was not only just lay out his vision, but you must have noticed he laid out the vision of everyone in the arena for what would happen. And that's where the experience really paid. Every inside government, outside the media interest group, how they would see this and his ability to really lead here was based on his ability to think about their reactions, why he was planning what he was going to do. This is incredibly insightful because most of us arrive with just some view of what we want to do, not how all these other parties will see this. So, uh, David, on behalf of the country, our students, uh, thank you very much for doing this. This has been a production of Decision Making Voices from the Field at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. We encourage you to share Decision Making Voices from the Field.